the Urban Broadcast Collective brings together the best podcasts on cities and urban life. Subscribe to us on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. We're at Monash University campus out in Clayton, and you're listening to Elizabeth Taylor, now of Monash University, Caulfield, so this is an adventure for me. And I'm joined today by three public transport researchers. We have Laura Aston, Nick Fournier, and Noel Tivendale. And I'll start by introducing Laura. You're a PhD student here, and you want to give like that horrible question, your PhD topic in, you know, 10 words or less. I shall try. My PhD is looking at how the built environment, so urban design, land uses um, and densities, influence decisions to travel by public transport and how that might influence trams, trains and buses differently. And Nick, you've just joined us from Massachusetts. Yeah. So what's the takeaway message from your PhD work? Uh, I worked on integrating multimodal systems, so like trains and bikes and buses, from like a choice behavior in a sense, and then addressing the equity that comes with that. So if you price things, how does that affect low-income users? That's what we'll be discussing a bit today, or we're focusing on cost and transport. And Knowles, you are a private a consultant, or what's that word, renaissance man? Renaissance man? Is that what, you know, people... International think, man of mystery. That's it, yeah. Transportist. Yeah, so I manage a consultancy called Movement and Place Consulting, and I also do the odd bit of lecturing, and I'm one of the national associates of the Public Transport Research Group here at Monash University, so I get involved in bits of research as as needed, often looking over things. What's the size of the group here, the public transport group? Must be that. Well, I am doing my PhD as part of a, a program which has 17 PhD researchers, but in addition to... Yeah, on, on government scholarships, doing their PhDs in diverse topics, and not all of us are supervised out of the engineering department, I happen to be, but we have people in medicine and nursing, we have people at the School of Art, Design and Architecture, which is where you're based, Liz, and students in science, things like mathematics, so uh, a really diverse take on public transport, everything from optimisation of, of scheduling to designing the future bus, what that looks like. I think we make up the main part of PTRG, but there are other research fellows such as Nick and uh, academics, maybe totaling up to 30 people. Yeah, I think once you're an associate, you're always an associate, so it tends to grow, but I think active people is something like 30. And I think our size is one of the reasons why you chose to come here, right Nick? (laughs) It is, yeah. (laughs) I've heard it said that it's the largest collection of public transport researchers in the world. Yeah, we were just talking about how, like, why I came here, and there's not a lot of, I mean, there is public transport research in the U.S., but it tends to be kind of, like, diffused or watered down by other things, and, like, focusing on, like, autonomous cars and things like that, and I don't really want to go into that, but... (laughs) So, Nick, you've come to Melbourne with bright eyes and and a different perspective. What has stood out to you, specifically in relation to the transport network, how we move around, um, compared to the states. And you've lived in California as well as Massachusetts, so... Yeah. So, I mean, my 
my perspective on life is uh, I graduated right after the Great Recession in the U.S., and I think that had a profound effect on The GFC me. in Australia. Yeah, you're right, right, you're right, the global financial crisis. <laughs> and you hopped on a freight train, right? And then you... <laughs> uh, I did. I hopped on Amtrak, which is equivalent to a freight train. Um, and uh, I moved to California, and I picked it because I couldn't afford a car anymore, and I didn't really have a stable job, so I had to. I was relying on public transport. And so I moved to San Francisco because there's basically like four cities with decent systems: New York, San Francisco, Chicago, Boston. <laughs> Anything else is all right. Debatable. <laughs> so I lived in San Francisco for a while doing that. You're a public transport migrant. I am. Yeah. Yeah. I was con refugee. Sorry. Yeah. Public transport refugee. I mean, I used to drive a pickup truck, which is like now I haven't owned a car in years. But <laughs> would that be standard for people to move into state on? on the train? It's not something that you can do here. <laughs> well, I guess I lied a little bit. I did okay. fly to California, uh, but I took the train home once. Yeah. <laughs> but, and then you studied in Massachusetts. I studied in Massachusetts. Boston, right? Yes. Well, the state's really small. It's still about 100 miles, just like 160 kilometers. So it's, it's just way out. It's like further than Bendigo, I guess, equivalent to here. Um, but, I mean, Massachusetts is so small. And is that where you, you stayed, that is, is that connected to Boston um, quite well, or is no, it? Not no, not at okay. all. all right. Not at all. There's a highway that doesn't, you still have to get to the highway, so it's uh, They stopped running the train, I think, in the 70s, and they, they put the train back in after 30 years, and there's one per day. Um, and it doesn't connect. So you got to stay overnight in Springfield, catch the one the next day. Whoa. <laughs> Springfield campaign for that one. Yeah, yeah. But that's quite romantic. Yeah, that's that's mm. right back to the days when you had to change trains yeah. in Chicago. Yeah, there's a joke. It's like Amtrak. It's for lovers because you're gonna, you know, if you're trying to chase your lover who's taking the train, you're gonna find them. They're still gonna be there. <laughs> <laughs> the <train's late. laughs> but Amtrak has a, a cultural identity. Tied yeah. up with America, doesn't it? So. Yeah, I mean, not to bash Amtrak. I, I love it. It's it's, uh, it's quite quaint, but yeah. it, it's what we have. That <laughs> it is it is tied up in the in the way that the public perceive government subsidising certain things yeah. and not subsidising other things, and that's really the topic of today about what are you subsidising and what yeah. are you not subsidising. I think that I guess going back to what you, your original question that I totally deviated from was what is profoundly different mm. and. I think what's really interesting, among all the little tiny things of quirks and cultural stuff, the fact that public transport is franchised out is much different. So, and even even that goes across Australian culture, like utilities, like electricity and water is franchised out. I think, right? Mm -hmm. As we're in the U.S., you know, the champions of the free market and capitalist economy. Everything's monopolies over there, publicly run. We have publicly run electricity and water. We have publicly run public transport for the most part. And I thought that was like, oh wow, I never even thought about that. <laughs> there you go. That's a quite a contradiction. Right. contradiction. Is that the same? I guess having ride sharing was quite disruptive then because that's something that is deregulated in, in America. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, I was just uh, writing a paper for Graham, and I kind of went on a tangent about that. How. It was enormously disruptive, mainly just because they circumvented the rules. Like in New York City, the the medallions, the, the taxi permits, you have to purchase it to buy someone out of one, so they're fixed. And so the value of them like, blew up exponentially to the point where there were almost millions of dollars. Sorry, the taxi the medallions. Oh, licenses. Yeah, the licenses. Which is the same as what happened in Victoria. Yeah. Yeah. I think people were buying them for five or six hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, so they were like enormously cost prohibitive. And yes. these largely uh, immigrant taxi drivers would come in and 
bank everything on this. They'd go in a couple of guys at a time and take these like crazy loan shark aggressive loans. There's an article that came out in the Times, and they lost everything because all of a sudden these, these Ubers came in and we're like, oh, ta-da, we're here, we're going to charge less and don't have all this other fixed costs that we that you have to account for. So <laughs> We're going to disrupt the market. Our, our two countries, or specifically Melbourne, has taken the opposite again. I think maybe we just like to be contrary. In this case, in, in Melbourne at least, uh, licenses for driving Ubers are under the same category now. They're regarded as commercial vehicles, as taxis, so that offset the, the bust that the taxi drivers experienced, I think, in Massachusetts. Yeah, I, I think it's starting to catch up with itself. You know, the wheels of bureaucracy are churning slowly, and they're starting to catch up. And I think, like Manhattan, they're going to do a congestion charge. And so, like, I feel like the the cost of what it was to operate a taxi are now going to be the cost of paying to drive your car around Manhattan to get drivers because mm-hmm. you got to pay this congestion charge just for being in Manhattan. Is that a, a decision really being made by the city to offset? Um, changes in income, or is there being more strategic than that? Uh, basically, it's because traffic's getting really terrible in Manhattan, and the... Isn't that that's a joke? Uh, traffic's... Nobody drives in New York, the traffic's If terrible. you live in Manhattan, you don't drive. But then where's all the traffic coming from? Everyone coming into Manhattan. Uh-huh. <laughs> I guess you can't even appreciate the scale of turnover of visitors and... and yeah. And, well, and, the, uh, the, size of, the size of the New York metropolitan area. It's enormous. It's like, I think it's like 20 million people or so. Yeah, and geographically, it's probably the size of Massachusetts. Oh, yeah. Because it's, <laughs> it's, it's just so large. Yeah. So the, the rail and the fixed public transport network can only do so much. Right. And so they, they basically, because they, I think the people on the left were arguing against it because their rationale was, oh, people who are poor tend to not live near these premium fixed route points. And so they have to drive in. Which, if you ever look into um, dollar tax, dollar cat, dollar vans are called in New York. They're these like illegal underground, like jitneys. Yeah, like renegade taxis, and they're like unmarked, like tinted windows, usually like blasting Caribbean music. And you're like you get to ride through, but it's basically to carry people who can't don't have their own car, and then they work in places that doesn't have transit. So we, you touched on their um, congestion charging in New York, and. Uh, the the cost of providing transport and, and the cost of access is something that both of your work and research cuts across. So I guess I wanted to ask both of you for your take on why access costs something, what it means when we talk about the cost of, of moving people around. I think at a, at a very fundamental level, people who use things are expected by the community to pay for them which is perhaps not the case in, um, let's say, historical uh, 300 year ago Australian society. There was a, a different way of society existing and people working together and that's just my take on, on things. And, and so with a capitalist model, well, if you want a Coke from the fridge, you're sort of expected to pay for it once you're over 18 or you know, your parents aren't paying. Don't we all have the, we, I guess we all assume we have the right to, to move around freely, but your work, Nick, has looked at how you can use, I guess, cost mechanisms to make access to a, a CBD or perhaps access to a transport network more equitable and flow more freely. So how can it be used as a tool in, in transport planning? 
Um, yeah, I mean, you can. There's like carrots and sticks, and like I guess it's an old saying. Like everything costs something, and ever since we started paving roads, you got to start paying for the roads to be paved. And ever since you built the trains, you got to you got to pay for that. And so you can use the carrot or the stick. You can like subsidize people's rides. You can say, hey, you biked, so we're gonna actually like make your train ride cheaper or something like that. Or hey, you drove, so we're gonna make that more expensive with tolls. But I think what people forget when you do that kind of model is there's going to be all sorts of externalities that come out of that. Um, you know, if you, if you charge on one road, it might make it really expensive for all these uh, farmers over here that are shipping their things. And now all of a sudden, your beets are really expensive. Or just the fact that, like, if, you know, if you estimate your model and it uses the average income of something, people below the average are going to get screwed. Well, and, and in a Victorian context, we've we've had a uh, haphazard approach to when we should put a toll on a road, for example, and when we should have a shadow toll, and when we should just let the fuel taxes pay for the construction of the road. To take those three examples, we've got CityLink that has a, a sort of ever ever extending uh, right to operate the road with every new addition they do or every way they can offset the government's expenditure bill on roads. But then we've got Eastlink, which was uh, put forward to the population as a uh, toll-free road, but then became a toll road when Connex, uh, sorry, it wasn't Connex, it was um, National Express, left the government holding the can on half the railway and half the tram network and needed a billion dollars to, to get Connex to take on the whole task. So there was a direct relationship there between, as a state, we don't have enough money to pay for the operation of the railway, and that's going to need to come from somewhere. And we're building this road, so we'll we'll actually get the private sector involved and make it a toll road that will give the will recoup the money. But then on the Peninsula Link, we use the similar model, but have a shadow toll so that the users aren't actually paying for it. But the government still is paying based on a per use basis, which seems uh, incongruous to me. In that we've got three different fridges full of your favourite soft drink. And depending on where you live, you might have to pay in different ways right. or not pay at all. It's like in, the big thing in the US right now is funding transit by doing like a half percent or like some sort of fraction of just on sales tax on goods. And like that's what Massachusetts does, how they pay for the system. But then the you know, people on the other side are saying, well, hey, like I don't ride the trains, so why am I paying for that? Comes this, the greater nexus. good, you know. <laughs> yeah, the, the nexus between the funding mechanism and the, and the benefits accruing to a user are important for the population. They're uh, really they're, mixed, right? Well they, well, they are, yeah, and, and essentially the people who benefit most from somebody travelling on the train is not the person travelling on the train. They choose to, but they're usually spending longer getting to work than they would do in their car, and the real beneficiaries are the people in their car on the freeway who aren't paying at all. To like the, their... the Onion article says 99% of survey, 99% of Americans support other people using public transport. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and as they as they should, I think I think you'd say the same for people in Melbourne. So yeah, get the get the other people out of the way of me, and we should take the same approach to cyclists. Somebody riding their bike down St Kilda Road, well, that's actually doing everybody a really oh, big yeah. favour, I mean, getting rid of congestion. Yeah, particularly if they're doing it in winter. They're taking their life in their own hands to benefit you. Well, I don't like that analogy. But, <laughs> but if they're in, if they're riding through the rain, you know, they really should get, um, you know, 
flowers at the end of it or an energy bar or something yeah. because uh, yeah, literally we know that traffic congestion goes up by 10% every time it rains and that's because people don't like walking to the public transport and they don't like riding and they don't like in the rain. So the people who are doing that in the rain, you're actually doing the rest of us a favour and, and keeping the congestion a little bit less than, than what it would otherwise well, be. When you bring up a point of that, like, there's, there's this notion of like congestion relief to just build a bigger road but it will always be filled. There's no such thing as congestion relief. There's only relief from congestion. Well, particularly if the road is free. Yeah. Yeah. So if you will always max it out. Yeah. If I, if I make if I make your favourite soft drink free or your favourite ice cream free, I'll run out of it pretty quickly. Yeah. And you'll want more of it. Pretty yeah. Fast. Yeah. 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 I wonder that history side. I thought it would be interesting to expand on because I mean, Nick, in the case of the US, it's in people's minds, it's the most free market um, experiment ever. But it, you were saying before, most of the public transport agencies are city run or state run and was that kind of like I could be wrong there but to some extent this was a reaction against some of the failures of the privatized a private system of transit in the past yeah I mean I guess it the US is kind of interesting case because I think I mean around the world they all kind of started going belly up mm. and the car dominated yeah these and like they the, were just like the street car operators and things like that yeah, yeah and so they kind of just like well we'll just uh, absorb this and you know keep the lights on mm-hmm. that's like the case of most transit in the US for a long time until now it's starting to like I think ridership peaked in 2014 Quincy only right after the, the GFC so it's like mm-hmm. ooh everyone's moving back to the cities it's not because we're millennials and we're cool it's because we're broke and we don't have a choice <laughs> so but it, I mean, the U.S. is interesting because it goes to the, the Highway Trust Fund. We put everything in this special fund based on the gas tax. Mm-hmm. And the, the Federal Transit Administration doles out some money to the cities to cover the cost. The state does some else else, and they have it all broken down. But the Highway Trust Fund, like you're saying, like... When does that date to the trust fund? Uh, it goes back to Eisenhower mm-hmm. right after World War II. He the went New to... Deal. Yeah, well, no, that's... That, that was before. Yeah. Right. Is this the uh, interstate highways? Stuff? Yeah, so mm-hmm. if you actually, I think... Most highways are, will say like the Eisenhower Interstate Highway System. Named that. Uh, right. Some of my grant money is the Eisenhower Fellowship. Right. <laughs> okay. But uh, what's kind of interesting though is that the way that the law was structured when they first wrote it, that's why there's very few toll roads in the US, because if you were to do a toll road, it can't be an existing Interstate Highway, it has to be a new one. Because when they wanted to build the Interstate Highway, they wanted to redistribute the money. Equally. They're like, well, it benefits, you know, we're going to take all the money captured from New York City and all those people to build this highway that's at a, at a loss in Wyoming that only gets one car a day, but we're still going to have a nip. And that was the, that was the principle behind that as long as redistributing the money out. So that's, we do that in Prangamite. <laughs> that's, that's an election joke. Oh, yeah. <laughs> We spend money where there's a marginal vote. Yeah. Yeah. So it goes back into the whole parts of like, you know, whose money are we spending it? Is it networking for the greater good or for who we're spending it on? So, which is kind of kind of interesting because I feel like cards get like vilified, rightfully so. Yeah, it was like the champion socialist model of America at the time. I think people are very, this would be my interpretation, also Knowles around parking is that people are essentially socialist when it comes to cars. And roads. They want they want the free parking. They want equitable access for all. They're sort of happy to pay taxes and things like that on it. Yeah, that's really that's a really interesting point. And maybe maybe that's the understanding that we need to uh, get to 
Uh, is Alan Jones listening to your podcast? I, I presume I, I'm he does. I'm pretty sure he doesn't. He doesn't. Oh, um, he we does. should call in and, and offer us. <laughs> so I mean, I think I think free car parking uh, is probably more of a communist ideal. So it's just the common, the common good, and mm-hmm. we'll, you know, you, you should never charge for it. Um, and and I think perhaps the the world is learning that we we don't need either extreme. We need to be somewhere in the centre and say there are there are times when the the demand is so light that common approach and free access is fine. And then, uh, and it is about social equity and providing access to employment or education. And a bit education. of spatial equity, it sounds like as well. In yeah, the US yep. case, you know, exactly. like, you know, all states get access to this network. And you could argue that's why there is a very high quality freeway all the way to Colac. Mm-hmm. You know, it is about access to employment, education, and uh, allowing that region to better itself. Um, but then, when things do get congested. That's that's clearly a time to ration the resource, and we need to ration it somehow. So do we say, well, you just have to get up early if you want the car space at the railway station, because if you're not there by six o'clock in the morning, then you're not going to get it. Or do we ration it in some other way? Is there a more logical way of rationing? And I would argue there is, but I'm not. I'm not seeing the public come along with that idea at the moment. The public, uh, I guess, if I take broad spectrum believe that getting up early is quite a fine way to ration things or luck of the draw you know a lottery around did i get the car space at the shopping center right next to the door luck of the door luck of the well, luck god, of the god door was intervening in, the, in that case you know like it's a, a miracle yes. it is a miracle <laughs> Keeps us all believing and how good is parking at shopping centers <laughs> and and whether or not we put a monetary cost on the parking there still is a cost to those people, right, that are getting up early to, oh, yeah. to take the car park. And you've said before, Knowles, that whether or not parking at train stations, for example, that's the example we're running with, is, is paid for by the people using it. In financial terms, there are other ways that we all pay for access yeah. to that, oh, yeah. that parking. Wait, so, and it doesn't matter where the parking is, everybody's paying for parking. If I bike to the store, I'm still paying for your parking. Uh, well, there's, a, there's that element of somebody else is actually paying for the space to be physically constructed. But there, there's actually the element of the user is paying regardless of, because they are paying in the distance they need to walk from where they get the car space to where they're actually going. It's very rare that you can park uh, in the drive through and just sit there for as long as you like. Maybe in Colac, but I'm sorry. Maybe. I was at a Colac drive-through uh, not, not too long ago, a couple of weeks ago, um, and I still wasn't able to park right. there the entire time waiting for them to actually get the order ready. So uh, I still had to move, move aside and let somebody else use that very convenient space right at the window. So in every instance that you could think of, somebody's... Uh, no, the user is paying for the space. They're either paying by getting up early, they're paying by walking much further than they would have otherwise if they get up late, um, or they're paying in that frustration of looking for the, per- the perfect space. And there's a, a time penalty that you can translate directly into dollars. Right. And in, there's some work done, uh, research done in Sydney uh, a while ago now, a few decades ago, this would be a really useful thing to replicate. Uh, test if it's still true. But a couple of decades ago, this 
research showed that people in looking for car spaces is a really frustrating exercise. Challenge you all to think about that time at Christmas or you know, Mother's Day happens to be a really busy day for parking. But the Do you time mean when Sunday evening every weekend at the shopping centre. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Any of those? Yep. It, it's a really frustrating exercise, particularly if you're somewhere new or really busy. And people were shown willing to pay six times what they get paid at their job. At their job. To remove that minute of time searching for a car space. It's that frustrating. So um, to sort of boil that down, if you're getting paid thirty dollars an hour. Um, 50 cents a minute, you'd be willing to pay six times that amount to re remove one minute of search time for parking. Obviously it fluctuates depending on your expectations and in fact how wealthy you are and all sorts of different things. But just the notion that people's value of time is incredibly high when they're in that frustrated, I really need a car space, I'm running late for my meeting, show, date, whatever it is, parking becomes really important for that person. But this plays out differently when, when it comes to the point where we're proposing congestion charge or parking pricing. Mm -hmm. Outside of that specific moment, people raise other kinds of concerns, right? Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the uh, let's say community difficulty we've got ourselves into because, from an extent, we're unable to discuss the details because of the at the higher level, it just feels like you're trying to charge me for something that I'd normally get for free. Even though there are very few things it's in really the world that are like that. <laughs> yeah. 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 Going from zero to one is very difficult, but it, it, it beggars belief that we charge people for water but medicine in our case <laughs> well yeah, yeah yes exactly yeah you can't turn on the tap without paying just a milli cent or something for each litre of water that you're drawing out of the reservoir but it seems like a real struggle to get people to understand that literally the car space that is on their property they have paid something for and any other car space they use perhaps they should be paying some fractional percentage of the cost of providing it. Now are there minimum parking standards here? Yeah. That was the big problem. Yeah we copied yours. Okay. Yeah. IT. In fact we copied yours from Texas. <laughs> right. In the 1960s. Oh so everyone's having like a spiritual awakening when they go and you got parking everywhere. <laughs> yeah they actually had engineers go over and come back with pictures of US and going yeah this works really well there and this is what we can do here. The inspiration is directly taken from US cities. We do have exception that the, the CBD doesn't have minimum I believe a council recently, Moreland was it, um, it did apply to abolish uh, minimum parking standards. I'm not sure what the update is on that. The update, oh, no, was, well, as far as we in know, flux. In, in flux, flux, the planning minister said he didn't like the sound of it because, and he gets the final say, that's the state planning minister. Uh, the practicalities hadn't been thought through and it's very difficult. The assumption is that it should be minimum requirements and the onus is on proving that any kind of change to that is perfect. And, and the, difficulty, the difficulty with that system is it relates back to these numbers developed in the 1960s when the, the, the reason for the planning system intervening was a market failure in the development market. Mm. So if you were building a building in the 1960s, there was a, a long established way of thinking that I don't need parking because I've got the tram and I've got the bus and the whatever else and I don't 
so I don't need to provide any of that. And there's a market failure that occurred, and the planners seek to fix the market failure and correct it by saying, this is how much parking you need, but then apply a blanket control that implies that anywhere in the state, you might... So state level? Yeah, the state level. Oh my goodness. Yeah, and, and so therefore, the, the amount of car parking you need in the centre of Mildura. We should say Colac again, just for the Colac, sorry, the centre of Colac. <laughs> Although I like um, the... Where you're right on, um, I don't know the name of it, but there's a sort of town square uh, with everything at your fingertips, and Colac is pretty walkable and a nice place to walk around. So the idea that you need exactly the same amount of car parking in that location, where everything is relatively walkable, to the CBD, right. where you would argue, well, it's immensely walkable when everything's right there, and then comparing it to a fringe suburb where as more car ownership has become apparent, we've gone further and further around a, a notion that, oh, as long as people can drive to the shopping centre, that's fine. But it's not very, it's not very inclusive, and there's a much better way to develop our city and evolve our city uh, so that the people who uh, literally prefer food over car ownership because they don't have that much money, well, let's find them places to live where we don't add the cost of a car space into the house and make it a mandatory requirement. I think that's a pretty important thing that we need to be addressing at the moment. I wonder how that uh, how that policy, like blanket policy, has affected development. Because one thing I've noticed that I find really peculiar is these major centers like Monash, Latrobe, Chadstone, they've got rail all around it, but not actually to it. And it drives me bonkers. And I don't know bonkers. if that's... Yeah, wow. It's a technical term. Yeah, But okay. I didn't know if that's because like they were like, oh, well, we need all this parking, so that thus we cannot live near it or something like that. Or if that was just like... No, no. So in the Monash and Latrobe instances, if you look at the aerial photography, um, uh, literally they, the institution, as it's been created, just bought up cheap farmland okay. in what they thought as a reasonable or a desirable location. Um, oddly, Latrobe was closer to a railway station in that they had a, a spur line that went to the Monk Park um, Asylum, which was very close to the university, but, um, but it's, it's, it's been closed. Um, and in the, in the Monash sense, I think, it's probably to do with topography. Like it's on top of a hill. I don't really know. It's a bit of a, there's a bit of a rise. You can very clearly see Monash from the city. And from Monash, you can very clearly see sort of the land around it. So it's it's almost like, oh, we will... A very um, city beautiful or city as a... Garden city. Kind yeah, yeah. There's yeah. a way of developing the city that, okay, this important institution will be on the hill and it'll look out over the over the surrounding region. But the cheap land wasn't next to the railway stations. And it was all fragmented. So I can't... I can't just go and put Monash next to Clayton because there's already shops there and uh, and all those back in the 1960s. And so it's actually always, a function there has long time. been a long, like you guys would know the history more, but this on the books plan to have a rail connection to Monash Clayton that just never has yeah. happened for some reason of, is it cost or I'm not sure what the logic is. It's a, it's a good question and I don't know whether Rohill Rail classifies as a major project or maybe one of these more localised projects that are not really getting a look in at the moment with project funding. You know, Roeville Rail's probably a semi-large project um, and it has been debated and discussed for 
as long as I've been at Monash, which is now ten, more than 10 years, so it hasn't eventuated. But, you know, recently there's been some alternative plans thrown around and I think with the suburban rail loop, right. we'll, we'll see a connection, not a direct one from the CBD because it's a... It's direct enough. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it, it provides rail access from different points. So. Yeah, I, I think that, that particular project is a much... Uh, well, it's a city-shaping project really that will enable a lot more people to get to a lot more different de destinations and it opens up education employment opportunities along with recreational opportunities but it's those education and employment opportunities linked into a much wider geography of housing that will hopefully change the way the city functions such that there's less of a, a need for high productivity jobs to locate in the CBD. They will still, the highest productivity jobs will still locate in the CBD, but the idea is that if we disperse that, it makes the whole economy more efficient and more effective. Yeah. Well, even just, I mean, you've got this incredible bottleneck in like the city loop going on right oh, yeah. there, and that's because you got to go in before you go out. So mm. if you can go around some way, like, I feel like take yeah. some of that pressure off. Your yeah. research, Nick, has looked at how you can prioritise access for non-auto travel, that is, I guess, pedestrians and, and cyclists, into congested areas. How does that, what's the premise that that's sort of based around? Are you referring to like the, the, the pedestrian zoning? Yeah, model? yeah, yeah. So I, I like to think of myself as a, like a really crummy physicist. Or like I look at things like a physicist approach. Like I'm like a wannabe physicist. I don't quite know the partial derivatives, but like I like to, I like the thought process. Um, but I like to explain things in, in, in a, a way that can be reused, and it's not just because a lot of times I feel like our industry we use these models and we, it's very like purely empirical based using something bespoke. bespoke, and it can never be used ever again because it's just like these are these things that we fit to this one. It'd be like building a tool if you're a carpenter that only worked on that last job and never get to use again so cities are like that though yeah the, the, the city every city is a product of itself and, and there are some tools that uh, let's say Sydney might apply to Sydney but right. they don't fit the Melbourne context but I get what you mean it's so a yeah. research to practice dichotomy I think I mean yeah, if, yeah. Uh, if like Isaac Newton figured out gravity using contemporary methods we wouldn't have calculus because you'd be like well we'll just measure it at, at infinitely small points and come up with some machine learning algorithm to predict where the app will be instead of just coming up with acceleration. I do think gravity is the same in every city. Yeah, yeah but like, we know that because it is. Like, it's, it's a fact, it's not a statistical probability. Right. I think is that the point That's you're what making? I'm to say. <laughs> yeah, and so I'm trying to come up with if there's something that we can come up with these models that are more robust and like generalized, maybe they are somewhat bespoke in certain senses, but can be reapplied and enhance our understanding of how things work instead of these like black box understandings. And I think the the way pedestrians interact with their environment right. and what causes pedestrians to walk or not walk, I think they probably are fairly innate things. Yeah. Right. Uh, there, there are a few places in the world where people want to be walking in the rain. Uh, I can think of somewhere they do it willingly because it rains all the time. But is that where you're where you're headed on? Yeah, that? where I'm headed is like, well, if there's some way we can come up with ways to be. All right, at what point do we justify, you know, pedestrianizing the entire CBD? And if of so, any city, of any city, based on some density and density of cer vehicles, certain things we can measure yeah. and make sense and justify it in a reasonable way. <laughs>
Yeah. So. And what did you come up with? Uh, we should pedestrianize the CBD because there's no reason you should be driving through it. Hang on, of any city? Of any city? Well, it depends on how it's laid out. I mean, LA has got many CBDs. Chicago is probably a bit more like public. Mm -hmm. New York. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, what are the what are the numbers that people should be looking for in Colac? Colac. Well, I guess to take a place you don't know. Yeah, yeah just, place just I don't say, know. So, I mean, think about it. Like, if you have you have your street network and you can move, they say like oh, two thousand cars per lane per hour, mm -hmm. per hour per lane. Yep. But maybe cut that in half because you have intersections. So now you can only run them half at a time. So yep. you can move a thousand cars per hour in your network. If you got more than that many people moving through there, you probably shouldn't be putting them in cars. They should either be walking, biking, or taking the train. Right, so if Colac's got a thousand people walking within around a, their center their tiny, in an tiny hour, little center, yeah, in an yeah, hour. then they should be thinking about should the cars be dominating this space right. or or should actually the pedestrians have a bit more of a role in dominating the space? Or is, is it a, an all or nothing, or is it a... Well, I guess it depends. Are you moving through Colac, or are you staying within Colac? Oh, fair point. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. and, At which and, point, and, maybe and you what, just go around it. <laughs> and what your economic impact is yeah. on the city versus the negative externality, or the negative impact of, I'm driving through with my really loud car. Which this gets into, you know, during the 60s, 70s, there were the highway booms in the US, and they would just slice through, Robert Moses era, just right. slicing through cities with highways. Uh, and which garnered a lot of pushback because we thought, well, wait, why are we, why are we doing this? Like, what's the benefit? If we're just going through the city, does it benefit the city? So, like Manhattan, if you live in Manhattan, you want a car, probably not. So, why do you need to have a highway for people? Interestingly, that's the same type of story that's led to the congestion charging in London being successful or successfully implemented. Whereas it wasn't in Manchester, and, and part of the story is about who's voting and who is who is making the decision or who is agreeing. And in the London case, would they case, both be similar kind of mechanisms in, in Manchester uh, and London? I mean, how does London? They have their similarities in yeah. that they're charging people to enter into a cordon. Mm -hmm. The London example is a very small cordon that is essentially the the CBD as we would think of it. That is the really intensive area that's got a lot of public transport running through it. And the voters at the time, when they were electing Ken Livingston into the mayoralty, they actually came from an area of... The, the, the London mayoralty was that inner part of London, not just the CBD, but sort of like inner Melbourne, if you like. And so the voters were owning less cars, walking a lot more, and their view was, yeah, I walk in my environment. I don't like the people from out of town driving through my environment. Can you get rid of some of them, please? Because it's just too congested. Um, counterpoint with Manchester, where they had a much larger congestion zone. Almost everybody in the entire metropolitan area was going to be affected, but only by one pound a day or something. And the ratio of car ownership to am I affected was very different. And I think that's uh, that's almost the problem that we face. I don't see congestion charging occurring because partly because it needs a state government to um, um, apply it. And at a state level, our, our uh, electors, um, they're not going to sort of impose that cost upon themselves. 
unless it's a very so people like event. to impose it on others essentially is that the kind of yeah yeah if, if, if I'm not using a car or I don't use a car now yeah. I know I actually probably above the average on my car ownership and use mm-hmm. um, but if if I wasn't then I'm much more likely to say yeah get the cars out of here because they're just annoying me yeah and in the London example so the mayors were the mayor was a pedestrian he was a pedestrian oh, yeah. as well so I guess uh, different people have a different willingness to pay for it and there's a, another issue there of if you charge then those who can afford it what's will the, afford it and those who can't. Alternative? Yeah. Is there one or are you just going to just gouge people? <laughs> and, and that goes to the Stockholm example where they actually built a large number of park and ride facilities, implemented a large network of new express routes from all points of the compass, even duplicating and replicating other sort of uh, rail alignments per se in, a, in an effort and, and through a pilot program. So they actually said, right, on day one, all this new uh, additional public transport service will apply and we're only going to be charging at the congested times. So this gets back to the is it is it a communist good or is it a or is it a sort of the opposite end of the right user must pay and in in Stockholm they were saying well the, the infrastructure the road infrastructure in their case it's a lot of bridges the bridges get congested uh, it's the only way to get into the central part of Stockholm is to cross one of these I forget how many let's say there's 20 bridges and and it's relatively easy to look at the congestion levels at 5am in the morning, 6 o'clock in the morning, 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, midday. And so then in the pilot, they said, we're putting all these new services in to help those people who don't want to pay. There is no charge between, I think the time was about 9pm at night and 6am in the morning. So zero charge. Then it goes up to one kroner and then it goes up to two and four kroners. Four kroners only for one hour of the morning peak and one hour of the afternoon peak. And we'll just see what happens. And in six months' time, we'll have a referendum about it. And I think that was a really sensible way of saying, we're going to deliver all this improved public transport service. We're going to tailor something that actually tackles the problem with a nuanced instrument, not a blunt instrument. Does still let you come into town if you need to drive doesn't charge you if you're coming into town when there's nobody else coming out of town. So it's not going to impact on the key workers who are cleaning the offices on very low pay or whatever, you know, sort of analogy you want to draw. And then we're all, we're going to give you all a chance to tell us how well this is working in six months' time, and if you don't agree with it, we'll scrap it. Like, that's a pretty powerful message to take to that so whole So they community. had their referendum? Oh yeah, this was, this was uh, I forget how long ago, but it might be... I'd say seven or eight years ago. Yeah, and, 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 and they kept it. Yeah, and it, it actually, the research that went along with it also showed that the public perceptions changed through the course of the trial. People were not in favour of it when it was mooted, and they landed on in favour of it in the end. Um, I forget the level of this, the change, but it wasn't. It didn't go from 51% against to 51% in favour. It was more like. 70% against to 70% in favour. So the, the population really did flip over that six month period. And another key element was that the people who voted for it in the referendum, some research, some really good institution like Monash University, tracked individual responses. Uh-huh. And they found that the people who voted for it 
when asked about their previous responses six months ago, half of them had forgotten what they answered. You mean they lied, or like they, or yeah, they that, said that, I forgot, or they, they said they either it. lied, or they, or they literally remember. didn't remember what their previous answer was. So, what that illustrates is that piloting process is something that. I think it does cut across all cultures and all cities. We should find some new ways of piloting simple methods of dealing with our issues and and bringing in a referendum-type approach to say, hey, look, once you've experienced it, then give us your views. But before you've experienced it, it's going to be very difficult. It's a bit like the, the story of anybody who's gone to Europe and comes back to Melbourne and says, oh, you know, city XYZ was fantastic why can't we have a public transport network like that and and uncovering the story a bit more they didn't leave they didn't go more than two kilometers away from the center of the city and you say well if you didn't leave two kilometers from the center of melbourne for two weeks you'd find our public transport system is pretty good too and i hear the same story from people in the u.s come to melbourne and go wow you got the oh, best yeah. public transport system i've trans, ever seen i love hearing you guys complain about your transport because we're like I mean, you guys have it. <laughs> <laughs> Nick, I was going to ask, are there any examples we can, I mean, we can look to from the US of congestion that's been done well? Or I know you have quite a culture on the West Coast of referendums. Is there anything to learn there? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think the US is kind of going through, like, definitely having some growing pains because, I mean, A, the Highway Trust Fund is no longer solvent. It's, uh, What's driving it's, that? Pun uh, intended. <laughs> <laughs> But it's basically it's, a, it's a, just a gas tax. Yeah. Uh, but no politician's ever going to raise it because it's just it's just a fixed amount. It's not pegged to inflation, and they haven't raised it since Clinton was in the White House in the '90s. So it's woefully below like sustainable levels, and the Congress just keeps throwing money at the problem. I think we're going to start to see like as money dries up from the federal level, states are more and more going to take their own onus on things. Like New York City, they've always been kind of waiting for like. The feds just don't have some money, but now it's just, they're like, well, they're not going to help us, so we got to do it ourselves. So they're going to start putting more and more toll roads in. Like Massachusetts is putting more in, New York's putting more in, California's putting more toll roads in. Especially as places get denser and they see, all right, more roads isn't going to work. We've already built more roads. We can't build any more. How much more can we build? <laughs> so it's it's kind of inevitable in, in terms of density. I mean, you guys are a little bit. A lot more space, mm -hmm. so maybe it'll be a while before you get to that like crush capacity. How long till the same thinking does apply to unlimited space for car parking? Because it's that same notion of yeah. you provide more and people will want to use it, and it is taking up space that is precious. The, the so tragedy of commons. Yeah, yeah. I, don't I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it definitely depends in the U.S. It's, I think it's town by town. Like the town I lived in abolished free parking standards. And it was a little town, it was like 30,000 people, but they're really progressive. They had a little town in the town. I think if you can highlight those successful examples saying, hey, this isn't just for the big cities, you guys can do this too. Well, actually, a place like Colac, it's, it is, they've got their own destiny in their hands and recognizing that people go to places they enjoy and go to places that they like being in they're places that are highly attractive, and that's sort of the right word. They're very amenable, they're very nice places to be, and if they're attractive, they are going to attract people. That will spur the economy on them. And I don't know too many people who say, 
what's the most attractive place to have brunch today or what's the most attractive place to go shopping and and spit out a place that is actually dominated by a car park right i mean i'll get my sausage maybe li- listeners can call can not call in but log, maybe they love love yeah. you know, well i'll, I'll get my sausage at bunnings yeah but i don't want to eat it in the car park <laughs> uh, so there is a level of attraction that says we are going to Bunnings for breakfast but I'm still not going to eat the sausage in the car park I'll eat it in the more attractive environment so I guess the the point to all that is that communities need to recognise what they like about the places they visit and they need to make that clear to the elected representatives If if they want less trees in their environment well just make that clear and there are all sorts of benefits we're going to get from more trees, and there are certain environments that trees can't survive in. We can't we can't sort of just fill a car park full of trees. We can put a tree every six or eight, or maybe even every two car spaces. But we start to have an impact on the number of car spaces we can fit in the car park. So we can have a forest, or we can have a desert of bitumen, or we can have some mixture of the two. And it's up to the community to be sort of. Uh, making it clear to the elected representatives this is what I'd like to see in my local area. But I guess it goes really down to local. I mean, if yeah. it's state Polite doesn't really have control over the parking they almost said The state should be like, you know what, we're going to just... You guys have your own control over your own parking destiny. And oh, so they, so they do. They do. Oh, they do. Yeah, the, the, the planning scheme can I, I alter. I would differ, though, because the, in order to alter it, like Moreland's trying to do, mm-hmm. the state minister has the final say, and they're signalling already that it's really... Oh, they're not amenable to it. I'm not. I'm not so sure about right. that. I, mean, I didn't want to. I didn't want to pick up on the sort of conversation, the nuances. I suspect there's a role the media is playing in almost door stopping somebody. Well, well maybe I, we should reserve comment until the decision's I, been I made on Moreland. Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair because there's there's a number of instances in the city of Melbourne, city of Yarra, city of Port Phillip, Fishman's Bend, where the minister has, has signed, signed off. off on these sorts of measures, which aren't about removing car parking. They're not about uh, radical change to the rules. It's just about making it more nuanced so that in the in the locations where it doesn't make sense, yeah. well, let's not put some added cost that just increases the cost of housing. Like That seems eminently sensible. And there's a whole reason why we're sitting here at Monash and there is not a car space within 500 metres of where we are sitting, but there's 20,000 people here today and they've all found it a way to get here. Uh, a lot of them have actually found a car space and they've walked the 500 metres from where that car space is provided. And it's because this is such an attractive environment. It's such a nice place to be. It's got all the things that attracts people to it and we don't need to rely on having a car space right out the front of my crappy shop or my crappy cafe. Because I think that goes back to that the era of one mode. Yeah, car, yeah. Car, yeah. Only car. We don't need these buses and trains anymore. Just rip them up. Yeah, yeah. Turn to yeah. LA. <laughs> Socialist, you can all have your own mode of transport. Right. Because I guess, I mean, maybe just uh, looking at it, like, in their defense at the time, they, like, the train company, especially in the US, were like, well, they were gouging gi- people. They were, they were tycoons, monopolies. They were the yeah. oil companies of their time. Yeah, yeah. You know? like yeah. Some of them still were still converted for inflation, like, more profitable than some of the yeah, yeah, yeah. Like Amazon, like maybe they finally beat like Penn and Reading Railroad or something like that. Yeah. But 
So yeah, they were like, wow, this is a revolution for people. Mm. No, that's a really that's it's a really interesting, interesting uh, yeah, thought provoking. I think it's right. But then now we're at that point where, well, all right, we've uh, run out. <laughs> yeah, the capitalist machine has sort of driven us all to be user pays, and there is an element for government around that that the the provision of roads is relatively simple, and it's just capital cost. There's very little operational cost associated with because we buy the car, and you cost shift to the users who have to buy the car and pay the petrol. Mindful that it's not paying for the full cost of the road provision. On the su subject though of uh, people speaking to their elected uh, representatives, one commonality between our recent federal election in Australia and the state election last year is that both in the, both those elections the winning party promised lots of free car parking at train stations. Why do you think that is? And, uh, so why is it free to park and not free to use the train? There's, there's three three years to the next election, so you can say anything you like. <laughs> oh my goodness, that just seems like such a like silly thing. Like, here's your free car and your free car. Like, you all forget a free car. It's parking. like Oprah like, Winfrey. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. What is this? It's crazy. People don't buy that. Like, <laughs> yes. I guess so. how many people they actually demand it. How many people actually get it? Like, is it, isn't it only ten thousand spaces or yeah. something like that? It's just like that's pretty wild. Mm. So. Would you have any other thoughts on that? I don't have any thoughts on that. That's just mind-blowing. Okay. No, just, <laughs> just mind-blowing. Oh, uh, that's because the US doesn't have enough transit services to worry about car access to transit <laughs> services. Yeah. Right. I, I, I do I reflect on uh, a, a transit network in DC where the services are operating about the same as services in Melbourne railway network. Uh, every 15 minutes off peak, you know, it gets a bit sketchy sometimes. They're not probably operating as, as often in the actual peak. They're not sort of going every three minutes on every single line. But um, but out on the fringes, they'll have car parking garages with 5,000 spaces in them. And you have to pay to park your car in there each day. And you're paying another five or six dollars every day to leave your car at the very last station on the line. And there is some very different approach that leads to, I think people there are thankful at least I can get a car space at the station, even if I have to pay for it. And it is that difference between getting up early to get one of 500 spaces versus the government has made a serious investment, not just a little drop in the ocean that you know, has been committed, oh, you'll, you'll sprinkle 10,000 spaces around the place, when actually the, the network's carrying, I forget how many people, but a lot of people each, each day, 10,000 is not really going to cater for everybody, and it's still going to mean you have to get up before 6 o'clock to, to get into the car space. So in the US, they've just taken a very serious approach to, this is the particular location where we are going to put a six-storey, 5,000 spaces, it's going to cost us a very big amount of money and therefore we're going to recoup that money over the life of the facility just like we do at the MCG. You know, yeah, the, why we can't all get into the MCG for free is just mind-boggling. You know, the, of all things in Melbourne, the MCG should be free for everybody. Is it? Shouldn't it? Yes. You shouldn't have to pay to go to the football. <laughs> oh, hang on. Oh, so free sausage. Well, free everything. You know, yeah, I want, and I want free food at the football. You know, right. I just pay, pay my electric bill while you're at it. Like. Yeah. Just a, a thought to close on. 
what is the future then for parking at our train stations? They can't just go on forever being more and more in demand. Can we apply any of the lessons from Stockholm on how to manage congestion into the city or use a bespoke instrument uh, to, to manage parking at train stations? Well, we know that, we know that uh, there are these issues all across Melbourne and even Victoria. A number of municipalities are hearing from their residents. I don't like a whole lot of commuters taking up the parking in my residential street. Then the councils respond with different permit or hourly restrictions, similar to what Darabin is announcing, um, or, or mooting, I'll say. Um, and then there's this push-pull effect between the people who want to be able to drive to a station, even though there's only 50 car spaces at that station, they'll then start parking in the nearby streets to some sort of distance that they're willing to walk. I think there are people who are probably walking more than five minutes just to get from the car space to the railway station. Um, and I'd, I'm not sure there's a clear answer that's going to sort of just be applied across the whole state, but the councils who are getting it right are the ones who are finding those 20 or 30 spaces closest to the station entrance and putting a charge on those spaces. And that means that it doesn't, it doesn't have to be a big charge, it just has to be a fee. That means the person arriving at 6am doesn't park in the best space, they park 50 metres away, and 50 metres isn't a big deal for them, it's 6am, I've walked 50 metres. Um, the next person to arrive walks 50 metres further than they used to walk, and so on. So nobody walks more than 50 metres more than they would have otherwise walked, depending on what time they arrive. Until you get to some point in the day, let's say 9.30 or 10 o'clock, when the person who's running late for work because they had to take their child to the doctor, they had to do a few other errands that morning, they really need to get on this train. The train frequency has dropped, so there's actually not another train for 20 minutes, and they're already running late, and I really need that car space right at the entrance to the station. And this, the councils that are doing it, Burundara, Maribyrnong, a few others, this actually means they can get the car space right at the station, and they can get to work on time, and, and we've fixed that problem. But I don't think that's a, it's still not a blanket approach that applies everywhere, and it certainly doesn't apply to the entire sea of car parking around the station. It's just about identifying how many people might turn up here and need that urgent car space. Well, maybe we have valet parking, and that's my... <laughs> what, your, your response, Nick, the future, uh, not necessarily of train stations, but I mean, Boston has like a really robust park and ride model. And they've had they have they have like big garages and they I don't they cost quite a fortune to park in depending on how close you get. And they've gone to the point now where they've they've reached many times they've reached capacity and you end up having to go further out to get back in. Oh wow! Um, but at the same time, they also will sometimes double up the parking with something that's already happens to be there. If there's like at a convention center, things like that. Or they'll be like, well, you know what? Maybe we'll open this up for some private company to make some sort of investment and. You'll notice a lot of times you look at the end of the rail routes, you'll see like, all right, here's the train station with the, the, the T's, you know, public sponsored parking. And then there happens to be like a private garage right next to it. Like airport parking. With comparable rates. You know? Yeah, so there's an airport, there's an airport sort of centralized parking. And then there's 
other other service providers yeah. who've realised a gap in the market at a slightly lower rate or a bit further walk, and I can buy the land cheaply and put my car parking. Uh, we are seeing that in Mooney Ponds and some other locations in inner Melbourne where people are finding it cost-effective or convenient to park their car in an all-day parking space that is privately controlled and then catch the train in the town. So that it's probably a land economics thing that will evolve as the city intensifies and the land scarcity drives up the cost of providing the facilities. But at the same time, I think it's also important to say, like, okay, don't just make sure you provide enough parking, but make it so that you can also get there another way. I think it's funny. There was oh, one station. Pretty cool. Yeah, there's one uh, one station where they built the, like a brand new parking facility, multi-level. I think it's like Sindel or maybe the one. Oh yeah. Oh yes. Yeah. yeah. And you got to walk through the car park to get to the station. And I'm like, this is very walkable and accessible, pedestrian friendly. Great. Let me dodge traffic on that. <laughs> so yeah. it's really not incentivized. Move to the me. buses further away so yeah. the car right, right. Yes, can be exactly. much closer. Yeah, so yeah that you, doesn't you, really you work. Should, does you should it? come at it from every angle. You should make it easy to walk to, easy to bike to, easy to take the bus to, so that you're not just favoring this one teeny tiny 50 people parking lot. Actually, that's a, a critical last point. Is the there's some unintended consequences of what are relatively good policies. The uh, free travel on the train before 7 a.m. That's actually do they led. They still have that. I never get up. They do. Now. They do still I have think that. Seven and ten. Uh, I, I don't want to get all, all technical on you, but the, the gates will let you out at 7.15. But, that's, but they don't want to, they don't want to publicize that. Oh, so that's, because, when you, that's when you were Because the 7.15, the 7.15 was, was, no, that's when you leave. So, and the 7.15 was only put in place for what if the train is late. So, you know, people can make their arrangements and, uh, and think they will exit by 7 o'clock. But if there's a 15-minute delay to the train, then the barriers turn on, and then there's all this palaver. Anyway, so let's say the, seven o'clock. Let's say seven o'clock, <laughs> and um, and that's led to a shift, a, quite a significant shift that uh, Monash University Research Club again has shown saves us about 100 million dollars in uh, avoided costs of buying another train to cater for all those people. The problem at the other end, the unintended consequence is by not making the bus access to the station free at the same time. There's an incentive for anybody catching the train before, let's say, 6.30 to drive to the station. And so there's a number of stations across the network where people used to be catching that very first bus of the day. Now the first bus of the day is empty because I can't get a free ticket unless I've driven myself to the station. And so then the car parking is So it's more already full by 6.30 or whatever? At, at Dandenong it's full before 6 o'clock. Huh. And you start walking a very long distance to get into the into the station. Um, and I'm sure it'd be, I don't know the numbers for all across the network, but it'd be a 6 o'clock would be about right for some of those outer urban areas where there's limitations on the amount of parking at the station. Perhaps a trial would have helped to pick up that unintended side effect in this case would be... <laughs> yeah, potentially. I mean, and, 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 the, and potentially not just a free fare on the bus, but if we're going to try and shift people out of the peak to earlier, like literally they are getting up early in order to avoid congestion on the rail network, maybe we should be providing more of the bus services at that early time 
you go on the trunk routes, the smart bus routes and, and those things so that it's relatively easy in an early morning setting to say, okay, well, I know, I know that I'm not going to get my local route, but there is that trunk route that's a little bit further away that is still operating. at that time because there's no congestion. Very reliable. I think yes. Katie, my partner Katie's having a, you know, this like ongoing saga with PTV because the bus is... Always a saga. Yeah. Which late? She's been she's been going back and forth with emails with them corresponding. Wow. Yeah. We could we could. I told her I was like just complain. They'll they'll listen. She should she should write a book like Game of Thrones and. You know, yeah. Right. Yeah. So she's having this like multi, you know, wow. email response back and forth with them because this bus is always late because it'll say like, it's coming in two minutes and suddenly. But I'll bet the problem is occurring across the entire network right. because it's of not, some it's some back end back end network you know algorithm or whatever it is it's some. Back but what I'm saying is, like, buses are tied to traffic congestion from automobiles, but if you're up early enough, they're much more reliable at that time. Oh, yeah. So why not make it free connected? Yeah, and provide a decent level of service that's going to meet every train or, or something. Right. You know, um, yeah. And then you will shift people on onto those services. We know that from the free... PT, free train trial, and that was piloted. Was any last words on um, on transport costs? You want to add, Nick? Um, what are you gonna are you gonna solve it all for us while while you're here in Australia? Absolutely not. I think one thing we didn't cover is yeah, you know, if you uh, you're gonna pay for it one way or another, either in money or time. Time is money, and if you yeah. don't make much money, you're gonna spend more time. And and, and overlaid into that is the frustration. So, yeah, it applies to everything else in life, and there's no reason it. Everyone pays one way or another. Yeah, and there's no reason it shouldn't apply to coffee. I thought oh, sorry, this lunch was free. I thought everyone needed to eat, and you know we're just going to get up and walk out. Of here. <laughs> oh. Well, on that note, before we skip out on lunch because everything should be free. Apparently. <laughs> uh, I'd like to thank our guests uh, with Nick Fournier and of Monash. Public Transport, what's it called? Research Group. Research Group, that's us. Noel's Tivendale, uh, entrepreneur and... Um, Managing Director of Movement and Place Consulting. Nice. I thought you were going with Man About Town. Okay. <laughs> and Laura Aston, who's a PhD student here at uh, Monash as well. Thank you very much for listening to This Must Be The Place. Thanks, Liz. Yeah.